Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast, where we dive deep exploring topics around the themes of mind, body, and soil. I, as I do every week, right, have a very fantastic guest for you. And for those of you that might be new to the podcast, I really like to take a different tact with guests that have been on many podcasts and whose work is discussed a lot in the space and try to find a different lens through which to do the interview, often touching on some lesser pieces of their work. And by lesser, I don't mean that in a hierarchical way, but just just less touched on. And my interview today with Nicolette Hahn-Nyman is no different. I really dived into some aspects of what it means to, to practice husbandry as people that are farming and ranching or even as eaters. We talk a lot about the intangible benefits of ranching and of agriculture on society as a whole that I think is just an incredible conversation. And within this, we talk some about the domestication of animals. And I actually missed a chance to read a quote of hers while we were talking, as I often do, that I thought I would open by reading here and then sharing a little story from my weekend at the farm. So here's the quote from Nicolette Nyman's book, Defending Beef. As I see it, the real issue is whether we humans are living up to our responsibilities as good stewards of animals and of the earth. Michael Pollan and others have proposed that animals chose domestication as a bargain with humanity. I put the words chose and bargain in quotes because obviously no individual wild animal ever made a conscious decision its species should be domesticated. Domestication likely happened gradually over many generations as some animals found advantages to having a certain amount of human contact. Humans agreed, again, in quotes, because the bargain was implicit, to provide essentials to animals, food, shelter from the elements, and protection from predators being foremost amongst them. Them. In exchange for the animals providing humans food in the form of eggs, milk, and meat. With dogs, the terms of the bargain were quite different. For being provided protection and nourishment, dogs exchanged assistance in hunting, early warning, and self defense. I really loved that she touched on the relationship between humans and domesticated stock. And I think that this is an important relationship for those of us that farm or homestead, but also an important relationship in a secondary sense for those of us that consume meat and wanting these good husbandry practices to be put into place. I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between us and our animal brethren, of which we ourselves are animals, as I experienced a tragedy here on the farm this weekend. Uh, 
sometimes things happen on farms that you can't foresee, that you couldn't prevent, that are devastating. And I lost uh, the first goat that we had ever bought who had become sort of my companion animal and just a deep friend. He was meant to be here on the farm for the rest of his years, just as, as a being that was a light in the world. And I wrote a piece over the weekend, you might have seen it on Instagram, but I thought I would read it here because I think that it's relevant to this podcast and I think I need, as part of my grieving process, to read this. And so bear with me if, if I'm a little raw in this reading. If intimacy is defined as a union of particles, closely approximating and coalescing, or familiarity, then our relationship to food couldn't possibly be defined by any other standard. This act of eating, an elegant conversation between our environment and our biology, humans and the food they hunt and gather and tend and raise, is one of the most intimate acts of our existence. Within that, the cycles of life, death, decay, and rebirth exist under the domain of intimacy. But we have lost our intimacy with food and thus our intimacy with death and decay and birth with it. Relegated to some rural town, our meat is processed in industrial facilities. 15,000-odd animal lives taken per day to go into hermetically sealed packages at the nearest fluorescent lit store. Agriculture outsourced to distant lands where forests are raised to grow soy and peas for a bastardization of food called plant-based meat crafted on a conveyor belt. We have gone past the moniker of agriculture, this iteration of food production and its relationship to humanity so distant, it can only be defined by the corporate organism that houses it. Thank you, Anthony Gustin, for coining corporate organism. Human hands and flesh have scarcely attended this conglomeration of ingredients we deign to call food. But here, as small butchers, farmers, processors, hunters, and gardeners, we preserve these last vestiges of intimacy with our food. The last bastions of bearing witness, not just to the abundance of life, but the transformation that marks death as the transition of one into many. Fungi in the soil exchanging minerals from rocks made from stardust in deep time for carbon at the root of the plant. Minerals made plant tissue, sun made phytochemicals, reciprocity made life. Eaten by an animal and made flesh and bone and manure that nourishes again the cycle of life within the soil. And our human place within it to tend, to love, to hunt. And here, and in it was a picture of a heart and lungs and hide. The heart and lungs and hide of a goat I loved beyond compare. A forever animal in our family, never meant for the freezer, that died tragically. Be a farmer about it. A euphemism to mark the ways we farmers must find purpose in death and hold and witness the cycles of life with an eye for the flow of nutrients from one being to another and back again to the infinite. When I found him dead, my sweet boy, I cried into his fur as I had many times before as my companion, my love. In return, I had always received the deep understanding that only animals seem capable of, but now his soul expanded beyond its container, only the soft weight of grief below my cheek. I wailed at the unfairness of it. And then, in the ways of farmers and shepherds and stewards, in the pain of bearing witness to the ceaseless tides of time and nature, I pulled him to my butcher table. Each pass of the knife, a prayer, a lament, a gratitude, a benediction. 
this act of transformation beyond the pale of the immense intimacy that is the usual intimate act of eating. Food, nourishment, carried to the mouth, opened to allow entrance of sustenance into a sacred vessel, passed beyond the walls of the stomach and the barrier of the intestines to begin a conversation of place and time and light at the cellular level. Nutrients once other becoming self. Could anything be more intimate than eating? This. To know and love a creature and to see their beautiful biology and death. To cry over a carcass, soul gone, and see the hillocks of liver lobes and valleys of joints like the land you once shared together. The intricate rugae of the rumen and sheer perfection of form. To break it down piece by piece, you yourself broken apart by grief. And then what? To sear the liver and drink the bile and sit in the setting sun and to know this union of particles, this strange intimacy of nourishment. Grief, the perigee to the apogee of joy, to know closeness only in so much as you know loss. Grief, a nutrient in and of itself. This communion of souls and matter now the realm of the few, but once and still the birthright of the many. I invite you to bring intimacy home, to go out and bear witness to nature, to yourself, to God, all words for the same thing, and the cycles of death and decay and transformation into life again. Seek out the closeness of your food through a farmer, a garden, a hunt. We can only change course when we know, and so come and let this sweet boy's life be an invitation back to knowing intimacy with your food. For you. Texas Three Socks. Thank you for letting me share that piece. I really wanted a chance to read it here, and this particular episode felt appropriate in that so much of it is about husbandry and our relationship with animals. On a personal note, I really enjoyed getting to do this podcast with Nicolette. I have followed her work since very early on, which I discuss on the podcast. We even bought turkeys from her and her husband, Bill, when they had B&N Ranch and sold them at the shop. And so I have a personal connection to their meat, and I just think that her work in defending beef and in righteous pork chop is beyond compare. Now, before we dive in, every week I read a review from the Apple podcast page of the Groundwork podcast episode. And in return, I like to tell people if you leave a review, I will in turn send you a little piece of snail mail if you just send me a snapshot of the review. And so feel free to do that. This week's review is very apropos, and I just felt so seen. So thank you, Peb355. My favorite podcast. I look forward to Kate's episodes every single week. I get excited for the unique guests that she has on, but also the unique perspectives she has on their work. I know she does her best to try and dissect areas of their work that other podcasters do not focus on, and I think it pulls out new fascinating views and conversations for the guest as well. I have learned so much about how to think and be curious and view things from more from a systems view. Thank you for all of your content. Ugh, I just felt so seen by this review, and I, I can't express my gratitude for seeing the work and love and different perspective 
I try to infuse this podcast with. And I'm just grateful for your review. And I am grateful for all of your listenership. And just, it is such a pleasure to be with here with you. This was a longer intro. And so I want to dive right into our interview with Nicolette Han Nyman, author of Defending Beef, which she just revised and the revision is incredible. This is another one for your nightstand. Let's hear it. So we were just speaking, and I, I wanted to say this at the outset, that Defending Beef has been the staple of our butcher shop. When it came out in 2014, the butcher shop was one year old, and it became a real seminal work for the way that I talked to customers about meat from both the standpoint of its environmental impact, but also from a health standpoint. And as vegetarians and vegans came into the shop looking to begin eating meat again. It, it really formed a good space to begin that conversation. And I'm just so grateful for, for what you've made in this space and getting to dive into the new edition, which I have right behind me. I was really struck. I had my, my old edition of Defending Beef had all of these notes in the margins. And when we moved out here to the farm, it was in a box that got water damaged. And so I didn't get to compare <laughs> and contrast directly, but I was just so floored by the new edition and everything. Thing that you included. So I just wanted to thank you at the outset of this for, for well, your work. Thank you. I actually feel like the new edition is quite different. And I had been thinking for a long time, I wanted to revisit the original book because I wanted to update some things. And just also, I had rethought some things. And then the publisher, actually the president of Chelsea Green Publishing herself contacted me and said, I would love for you to do a new edition because I feel like this is more timely than ever. And I said, I can do it in a few months. And I start, I immediately said, yes, I'd love to. And I started working on it. And then I contacted them a couple weeks later and said, it's going to take me a year <laughs> because I, I didn't realize how much I wanted to recraft what I had originally said. Not that I didn't, you know, reverse anything I originally said, but I've come a long way in my thinking and I think the issue has moved and, you know, the public conversation has moved. So I had a lot of, a lot of reworking to do. And so I was really delighted to have the opportunity to get, to make a new edition. I think it's incredible. And I, I remember the old edition because it was, it was so well-worn and what you have added really adds so much texture and i think that one of the one of the first questions i have for you off the bat is it's been 7 8 years since the initial release of defending beef and i feel like it is more relevant than ever more needed in this space than ever but i feel like that conversation around meat and around beef in particular has really evolved i feel like in 2014 meat was there was some tension in the public sphere around beef and meat and the environment. And today that has really grown into something that feels a, like a lot more than tension. It's almost bordering on vilification. And I think we see the ramifications of this as beef exits menus on school and university lunches, as legislation in various countries cut ruminants to adjust things. And so where have we come in the last seven, eight years in this conversation? 
Well, I think it's, there's kind of a complicated answer to that because I agree with everything you just said. On the one hand, in certain spheres, like let's say policymaking and places like that, there's more focus on beef as a problem in a lot of places. And there's more attempt to address it through very simple solutions, so-called solutions, <laughs> you know, things like removing it from menus, taking it out of magazines. I mean, kind of absurd actions, actually. And then on the other hand, you know, I was just, I did a two-week speaking engagement or, you know, tour, I should say, really, of England, Wales, and Norway. And then right after that, I came back and did a two day brainstorming session with some people working in food and farming in here in California. And I was just filled with hope after, you know, these three weeks of being on the road talking to people, because I feel like there's been a lot of evolution in a positive sense of this sort of understanding of the complexity and how we can tackle that and sort of constructive ways for people to work together to really um, build a better food system. Because the part that's discouraging about, you know, what you were just mentioning in your question, Kate, is that it's reinforcing this very simplified view that, you know, meat is problematic, especially beef. So we need to just cut back meat and that's a solution. But what I always say to people about that is if you simply take out beef or cattle, you don't do anything to build a better food system. So if you, you know, just, if I just, I think if I just put it in those really stark terms, it helps people think about it a little bit because what we desperately need is improvement in the way farming is happening and in the way animals are taken care of and in the way we're eating. And if you just, you know, if you just think of it like a table with everything going on on, you know, you just look at, you just took the little cow icon off of the table or something. What have you done to improve farming, to improve food production, you know, improve diets? You've actually done nothing to build it, but even more importantly, and that's of course what the book argues, you actually remove an opportunity for ecological benefits and for lots of nourishment and nutrition and enjoyment in our food. So I'm on the one hand seeing more vilification and oversimplification in some circles, but I'm also seeing more nuanced conversations and more intelligent discussion in other arenas. So I am optimistic in spite of the fact that, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> troubling things going on. I see both things at once. I really love that. And we talk a lot on this podcast about sort of exiting the paradigm where everything is just pitting one thing against another thing and going into relationship building, which is actually a lot of what I want to talk to you today is this idea of how we build relationships with land and with animals. And, and so I really like shifting that lens and I even have to shift it in myself sometimes. And I, mm -hmm. I know these things. I wonder in that what you've seen as the impetus for building some of these relationships and for having some more of these nuanced conversations. Do you think that's born out of some of the the bigger talk that's in the media that is against and in that there's a pushback or what do you think might be happening there? Well, you know, these are such big issues because it, it really does touch on so many things, farming, soup, food systems, you know, public policy, diet, health. I mean, there, you know, there's a lot a lot of different angles to this. So there are a lot of different things sort of working on this. But I think one thing is the idea that we should just cut off meat, cut back meat, take it of our diets, 
you know, has been out there for a very, very long time, but it got a kind of a new energy and a new life. I'd say, you know, approximately a decade ago or 15 years ago, when there was began to be a huge amount of focus on meat related to climate change. And so then there was all this energy around, oh, well, okay, so we just need to get rid of animals. We need to get rid of meat in the diet. And then what I've seen is, first of all, there's quite a bit of research coming out now that shows the ecological upside of animals in the food system. So there's been a whole kind of wealth of new studies surrounding, for example, carbon sequestration in the soils. And there's been a great deal more research, just generally speaking, about the biology of the soils. And a lot of that connects to the livestock, you know, the role of animals in it. Not entirely, not always that, but that's often how it's linked into this conversation. And there's a you know, sort of a whole new understanding of the positive benefits of animals in when you're talking about soil biology. And then I think almost everybody knows one or two people that, or maybe they themselves have tried being a vegan or vegetarian, but, you know, often it's vegan. And, you know, probably everyone listening to this already knows the research shows that about 85% of people who try veganism return to omnivory. Sometimes after an extended, you know, attempt to be a vegan, like maybe 10 or 20 years, sometimes after just, you know, six months of it, sometimes it's for convenience or just loss of, you know, the enjoyment of eating that people miss. And sometimes it's because of really serious health problems that resulted, especially for people who, you know, tried vegan diets for longer periods of time. So I think part of it is the, um, there's actually people are beginning to actually know people who are vegans or who were vegans or they themselves were. And so there's a lot of anecdotal information filtering out into conversations about, well, I tried that diet for a while and it didn't work very well. Or I had this I was one of them. problem. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, um, you know, it was almost like, in fact, I remember not that long ago, I'd say a decade ago, I would often encounter people who had never heard the word vegan. Okay. But then you had Bill Clinton being a vegan for a brief period of time, although, you know, he was eating tortilla chips and salsa and stuff like that. I mean, like he was not a really good example of a healthy vegan diet, but that's also true for many other people. But then you had, you know, Beyonce. And I mean, you know, there were just all these different kind of high profile people talking about veganism and so forth. So it was an idea that sort of burst into public consciousness And then I think people sort of tried it and knew people who were trying it and it kind of lost some of its appeal because there were enough people trying it and not enjoying it that much or having that much success with it. And then sort of parallel to that, you had this huge upsurge in the the appearance of vegan products, basically processed food that, and especially like fake meat, you know, replacement meat alternatives, they call them. And there's been a pretty dramatic um, showing in the marketplace in the last year and a half or so that those products haven't been very successful. There are some that are succeeding, but the vast majority of the companies attempting this are not doing very well. And and there's been a lot of loss of value. So I think there's just all this kind of like, there are all these different, you know, angles on which people were kind of looking at the really simple solution and then kind of tried it. And they're kind of like saying, well, wait, maybe, maybe that isn't the solution. (laughs) But I also think there's just, um, this whole idea of regenerative agriculture has really grown in the last 
you know, yes. 10 years. I'd say both Immensely. both um, the awareness of it as for farmers themselves, but also, you know, the, as, an, as an idea that this is something we should be working towards. And also actually among consumers, like, can I actually seek food that is from a farm or ranch that is doing regenerative practices? That's something I don't think was on the table at all for the vast majority of consumers 10 years ago. So I think you have, you know, all these different things happening that are contributing to a little bit more complexity and nuance, thank God, <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> and it isn't, it, you know, the really black and white, you know, meat's bad, plants are good. <laughs> I had a talk that I did quite a few years back that I had this little slide because I was talking to a school. So I was doing this Harry Potter thing and it was like, you know, plants are, you know, Harry Potter or whatever. And Voldemort is, you know, meat or whatever. I mean, this is kind of like the way it was being portrayed, you know, everything bad is meat and everything good is a plant, you know? And I was just kind of saying how silly this was obviously, and trying to just present it much more as a thing of, you know, interrelated, you know, things on a farm and that you want to think in terms of ecosystems, in terms of food systems and in terms of even on individual farms and ranches. And so, you know, I always try to, as you said, Kate, move away from that dichotomy of good and bad. I love that you framed this within the ecosystem of the way that we consider things, right? That just like anything else, the complex landscape of how we eat and media's role in that and our urbanization's role in that all comes together to create a system that is quite complex in and of itself. And that's something that the book has also always been so beautiful at pulling all of these different threads. And I, I agree with you. When we opened the butcher shop in 2013, you know, we only did 100% grass-fed beef, grass-finished beef. Mm-hmm. And that word regenerative hadn't really appeared. I don't remember using that when we opened in 2013. It would take a couple of yeah. years before that really became a part of the lexicon. And I think that really brought in an idea of, okay, this is actually part of a system. It's not just an individual thing that you can pluck from the landscape and not have these ramifications and effects. And then all of that soil science. I mean, we've had, I've had Will Harris on and Stefan Van Vliet uh, to talk a lot about, and David Montgomery to talk about some of these more nuances (laughs) in soil. But I know I, all of those people. Those I know. Are, those are great guests that you have. <laughs> Honestly, your book, it leaves the most beautiful breadcrumbs of book recommendations. And I found even <laughs> more in this reading. But we, I did a whole podcast with Bobby Gill on Frijof Capra's Systems View of Life, which I know you mentioned, mm. you mentioned in the book as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, I love you for all of your, your book recommendations. But <laughs> I wanted to, before we dive into all of these these tightly held relationships, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up what I think of in terms of your book as kind of the shot heard around the world with the Livestock's Long Shadow report and how that really did serve as a launching off point where media and different figures were really glomming on to a statistic that was later corrected, but corrections aren't as sensational as original figures. 
And also, and I heard you say this in an interview recently, and I thought that this was amazing, that it wasn't that livestock's long shadow wasn't so much about reducing meat consumption as it was about reducing extensive grazing into more concentrated feeding operations. And I yes. love this because I think this brings in this component that here you have a statistic that is very compelling in, in a media landscape for the environmental impacts of meat, but you also have a report that is suggesting that we concentrate things even more and in that, we also concentrate profits. I mean, from my lens of things, when we're getting into concentrated animal feeding operations, it's better for corporations and less beneficial for the family farmer or rancher. Yeah. Well, I've had the opportunity to meet Henning Steinfeld several times. He's the lead author on The Livestock Slung Shadow. And and there's no question whatsoever that that's his perspective, that he he's not a vegan or vegetarian. He's not even an advocate of greatly reducing meat consumption. That's not his focus. He's really focused on this idea that in order to feed the world's population meat, we need to concentrate it rather than have it sort of be out on the landscape. And so, and his, he has a whole sort of career of work supporting that view. In fact, he's even visited our ranch and I've met him in the U.S. and also in Germany, et cetera. And so there's no question that that's his perspective and that that's what drove that report. So there's quite a bit of irony how that how that figure is used over and over again by vegans and vegetarians and advocates for reducing or eliminating animals from the food system it's really taken quite out of context but more importantly you know as you said Kate first of all the headline with the press release for that report was that that the livestock of the world actually caused more greenhouse gas emissions than all of the transportation sector combined. That actually turned out to be completely wrong. It was not actually contained in the report. It was contained in the press materials that were generated for, might've been in the introduction, but it really wasn't a key part of the report. The report itself was focused on pretty specific data, et cetera, but there was kind of this splashy headline like, oh, this figure is actually higher than all of the transportation for the world. But there were some scientists who challenged it and said, well, you used a totally different methodology for, you know, the figure for the livestock versus the transportation. And the authors acknowledged this and withdrew that statement, but it still gets repeated over and over again. And you know, it just shows how <laughs> people don't, as you said, the correction's never as sexy as the original splashy headline. <laughs> but also there was subsequently a report that updated the figure and it changed it, you know, downgraded the figure from 18%, which was the figure that that first report came out with for all of the livestock. And it said, actually, the figure is probably closer to 14.5%. And even that figure, you know, I argue in the book is is really much too high if you look at it from a holistic standpoint, because that same report, the 2013 update of the original report, actually said that there's a significant uh, effect from the livestock of the world to help sequester carbon in the soils. And so it acknowledged that. But then it also said 
But that number hasn't been quantified. We really don't know how much of this is occurring. And so we cannot include that number. So what we know from that statement, from the report itself, is that that number could either pretty dramatically mitigate that 14.5% or it could even completely eliminate it. They did not even attempt to estimate the quantity. And there are lots of other you know, scientists who've said, it's pretty significant number. And even more importantly, I think, is the report just tried to show a snapshot, you know, the original Life Sex Lung Shadow Report and the updated report. They tried to show a snapshot of the world's food system. They didn't talk about the potential. And what I'm you know, arguing in my book and everything I've written is we need to do a lot to improve the way we're raising food, not just animals, but also plants. There's a tremendous amount of sort of ecologically poor practices that are happening throughout the whole food system. And if you focus on just grazing alone of all the grazing animals, there's a huge amount of potential, according to, you know, a lot of, you know, rangeland scientists and soil scientists to dramatically increase how much carbon is being added to the soil. So again, that number that they came up with a 14% could be dramatically lowered just by improving practices. Even, you know, even if it's probably quite a bit lower already, but it could be brought down even further just by improving grazing practices. Because there's a lot of good science showing that where you have well-managed grazing, you have dramatically better soil health and dramatically more carbon put into the soil. So that shows huge potential for a positive effect on the world's food system. I love that you mentioned that even this statistic is coming from a very simple, I mean, it's not really yeah. in the context of an ecosystem. It, it's just, and it's, it's reaching for a science that I think that we don't fully understand. And one of the things I wondered as I was reading the book again, was we have this hypothesis that animals and ruminants are, are bad for the planet, bad for the environment, but we haven't really explored this null hypothesis that they have been here for a very long time. And I pulled this quote from your book. Ruminants have been grazing, chewing, digesting, burping, and farting for tens of millions of years. As with millions of wild ruminants before them, carbon released by cattle as methane comes from the air, is taken up by plants and soils, feeds animals, and returns to the atmosphere where it is available again to power plant growth. This is not pollution. It's the Earth's age-old natural carbon cycle. And that's, you know, that's, I think, um, Dr. Frank, Frank Mitloner at UC Davis, who's an animal scientist and, and specializes in air emissions from animals. He's done a really good job of kind of, he's, he's got some videos and he's done some, a lot of talks and um, writing about this whole idea of old carbon versus new carbon. And he really illustrates it really well that you have, you know, the whole fossil fuel industry, whether you're talking about natural gas, oil, or, or coal, is about trying to extract something that's in the earth and is really sort of deeply buried generally and essentially deeply sequestered and isn't affecting you know, the atmosphere of the earth, but you're extracting that through processes and then you're, you know, you're burning it. And then there are a lot of releases of methane and carbon dioxide throughout the whole process, the extraction process and the using of the fossil fuels, et cetera. But this is new carbon. Essentially, this is carbon that was tucked away safely, not affecting the atmosphere at all. And that's, you know, there's a huge amount of evidence that that is actually 
changing, you know, the Earth's temperature and the, the temperature of the planet. Okay. On the other hand, you know, what Mitloner and many others have been arguing, I think really effectively, is that that's really separate from carbon that has been continuously cycling in the Earth's ecosystem for literally millions of years. And and there's this is kind of coupled also with research showing that there were enormous numbers of ruminants on the globe. Not just, you know, a lot of people are aware that we had, you know, sort of large herds of bison in the Great Plains and things like that. And maybe people might know there were large herds of caribou and, you know, North America, the northern part of North America, etc. But it goes way beyond that. There were enormous herds of grazing animals, ruminant grazing animals in many parts, most parts of the earth had had some kind of herd or another or many different types of herds. And for example, in the book Wilding by Isabella Tree, she talks about the UK and continental Europe and Norway even. I was just in Norway a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, it's quite densely forested. And many people in Norway are not even aware of this longer history, which included huge herds of grazing animals not in that not too distant past. So they think of, people tend to think of, you know, Europe as a place where it was sort of covered from one end to the other with trees. And the only way you have clearing is where humans came in and cleared it. That's really not true. There's kind of a more and more evidence that Europe, as well as many other parts of the world, had large open areas created by these wild ruminants, created and maintained by these large herds. So the other piece of that old carbon argument is that you had these wild ruminants that were on the earth for most of, you know, its biological history, or not most of it, you know, because you can go back 3.5 billion years or whatever to the beginning of life. But, you know, it's sort of the part where we had the larger animals, things beyond single-celled creatures. We've had the grazing ruminants for tens of millions of years. And they were having this impact on the land and the landscape and and their carbon, they were part of this carbon cycle and they were fostering this whole thing. So it's just a sort of a bizarre idea that we would treat fossil fuel emissions and carbon that's related to this age-old natural cycle in the same way, okay? And there's more and more reason to recognize that that's absurd. And in fact, even since this new edition of Defending Beef came out, there have been a whole series of articles. I, I post them. I don't even post them all anymore. I, originally, I was posting them all on social media, but there are so many. I don't even post them all. But there are you know, almost daily, a new article about some form of methane emissions from the, you know, natural gas, oil, or coal industry that had previously been uncounted, unmeasured, unregulated, unreported. And it's sort of the the sort of collective picture of this is that there's a huge amount of methane that hadn't been attributed to the fossil fuel industry. So there was this global count of methane and then they were kind of divvying it up and saying, you know, oh, this much is due to cattle and other ruminants and this much is due to fossil fuel industry. And it turns out now that a massive quantity of methane, I think it's largely because of the satellite technology that they're now being able to much more accurately count it. But there hadn't been any attempt by governments even to regulate this or to track it or anything anywhere in the world, really. So a bunch of different groups of scientists are showing 
all over the world, that there's a huge amount of methane coming from the fossil fuel industry that hadn't been counted before. So cattle were being blamed for a massively disproportionate share. So there's a lot that's not correct about the way people are talking about methane for cattle. And sort of my bottom line, I go, you know, as, as you know, Kate, I go into a lot of detail in the book about it, but the bottom line is it's kind of a red herring, you know, and when we focus instead on using cattle, like how can we really make cattle be these instruments of positive ecological impact, which has been demonstrated all over the world? That's the right conversation. And the idea of taxing methane from cattle or any of this other stuff to me is just not only a distraction, it's just nonsense. I think it's nonsense. And I also think it's something that has the potential to hurt farmers that are really trying to, farmers with small margins that are really trying to utilize these technologies of regenerative agriculture to do the best that they can for the environment that they are very much a part of. Well, and it's also, I just have to add, it it's making farmers feel on the defensive. And so in addition to, you know, we've been hearing for the last decade, we should eat less meat and meat is bad for us. You know, we've been hearing meat is bad for us for quite a while. Thankfully, there's more and more good science unraveling that, you know, false claim. But when we talk about taxing methane from cattle and so forth, it's just further, you know, it makes, and I have spoken with farmers all over the world who describe this, just kind of feeling not just underappreciated, but literally under attack. And I think they are, they have been from these various messages. And when I first started all this work 20 years ago as an environmental lawyer, I thought there was kind of a lot of paranoia among farmers and ranchers. And then the more the more I got into it and then marrying into a ranching family and really spending a lot of time on ranches and really understanding that perspective, I realized it really, there probably are some paranoid people too, but for the most part, this is legitimate this is a legitimate concern and a legitimate feeling because there is so much anti-meat and so much lack of recognition of the nutritional value of the food that they're putting into the food system, people who, who are raising animals for food, and this incredible power that I was just mentioning to be a force for ecological good. So I, you know, I just... I, on the one hand, I'm kind of discouraged that there's this conversation happening about from a policymaking standpoint and, you know, Hollywood, you know, makes, you know, sort of pro-vegan messages and so much of what it comes out with. But on the other hand, as we've been talking about, there's more and more interest and um, discussion about regenerative agriculture and diets that are based on real food that are containing a lot of nourishment and nutrients. And that is, that to me is kind of the key conversation that needs to take place. And meat is so valuable because not just it contains a lot of nutrition, but it's very, very usable by the human body. It's bioavailable. So that is in stark contrast to a lot of other things that we're told we can eat instead of meat to get, you know, comparable nutrition. You could look on a nutritional label and think the foods are equivalent, but as far as how much your body can actually use the nourishment, use that nutrition, it's vastly different. And foods from animals, whether it's eggs, fish, meat, you know, butter, all these foods, they are extremely usable by the human body, which all relates to the way we, we've evolved, which is, you know, always seeking and valuing these animal-based foods. So they've provided, you know, 
humans and our ancestors invaluable nutrition for millions of years. I agree completely. And I really want to dive into that. But I just I have to touch on this conversation with farmers because I don't think it gets touched on enough that and you really outline this in the book that rural communities, less than 1% of the population of the United States is currently involved in agricultural pursuits with somewhere around 17% living in rural communities. And I think that that is such a point of disconnection from how our food is raised coming from, and oftentimes these narratives are coming from people that are in more urban environments and maybe don't have what my friend Bobby calls ecological literacy that mm -hmm. we find when we are in relationship with growing and raising our food or see it when we drive past every day in a rural space. And so I just, I, I wanna thank you for touching on that because I think it's it's very important as we kind of watch it, how the relationship between farmers and culture at large plays out during this time. Yeah. Well, again, there's that kind of good news, bad news on the, on the bad news side, you know, the world is less and less rural. There are, you know, the cities are larger and larger, a larger share of the population lives in large cities kind of everywhere in the world. And that's, I think problematic from many different standpoints, because honestly, I've lived in big, I've lived in a lot of big cities. I lived in San Francisco for a while. I've lived in Washington, D.C. on two different occasions. I lived in Durham, North Carolina. I lived in Lille in France. I lived in Dakar in Senegal, and I lived in New York City for five years. So I've lived in big cities. I like a lot of things about city life. I think there are many appealing aspects to it. But I increasingly, in my own experiences, became convinced that it's hard to be, you know, really deeply satisfied and happy in those environments over the long term. Because, and it might have something to do with the way I was reared myself as well, because I was really reared spending a lot of time outside and a lot of time in nature and a lot of time paying attention to nature. And I found it very, very hard to do that. And there's a kind of a rebalancing, you know, when you, and a lot of people get this from, you know, whatever religion they might participate in, but you get the sense of, you know, there's something that's much greater than yourself, I think, when you're in nature. And I, when I lived in New York City, I always had to live near near Central Park because <laughs> I had to go and spend some time among the trees and on the green grass. And it really helps you to remember that there's this greater universe and that there's this long arc of history and, you know, to just be a little bit less inwardly focused in terms of your own, you know, daily concerns. And I am more and more convinced that like children really need time outside. They need time in natural environments. I, I talk about it in Defending Beef. I think yeah. uh, this idea I of dive having, into that. Yeah, just having children in kind of unsupervised situations in natural places is a really interesting idea that I hadn't thought about until I was researching for the book. But I really believe this is important because we need to explore and connect kind of on our own, you know, level, whatever that is, whatever age we're in, with not just be told by adults, you know, here's what, here's your activity in this patch of dirt or whatever. But I, I just, I really believe this whole 
connection that agriculture offers and ranching, you know, and farming, it's something that creates unique citizens. And I talk about this in the chapter called People in the book. And I have lived this myself now for the last 20 years, but I've seen it as well on all the farms and ranches that I've visited. So I think it's a very important aspect of this whole question. Yeah, I I had that for a little bit later, but I think it's great to dive into this because you say, and I think that this is so important, that there are these intangible benefits to our relationship with nature and with farming that we might not recognize immediately. And on the child rearing and good citizenship, you say, yet one aspect of America's shifting demographic has been largely ignored. As we lose farms and ranches, we are also losing an exceptional environment for child rearing and an increase incubator for good citizens. Equally underappreciated is that we are losing a physical environment conducive to rearing strong, resilient children who become healthy adults. And I loved this because this brought into the space, and you have several anecdotal stories within that, the amount of independence and responsibility and connection and microbiome building that farming and agriculture afford us as as people and as parents. I, I mean, I know that when I walk out and I pet the goats every day, I consider that my probiotic. And, <laughs> and so yeah. there, there are these intangible benefits that and I love I loved that term. Yeah, because it, it isn't, you know, I don't think I've, in fact, ever in all these different policymaking discussions that I've listened to or been a part of or reports that I've read, I haven't read. Of course, there's this idea that, oh, we want to, you know, protect farming as a profession and protect farmers. But this whole idea that there's a unique opportunity for humans to live in a sort of uniquely beneficial way. And I and thank you for reading that passage, because that that really does summarize so much what I've learned and what I think about this, that we, especially nowadays, children are really very tightly supervised and they're rarely in situations where they have a lot of independence. In fact, I've had some very interesting conversations with people who work at universities who've told me that they had, you know, worked there for 30 or 40 years or whatever. And there was a dramatic change in the young adults that were coming to the university in terms of their capacity to manage their own lives. Like it was, it was totally different from 20 years ago where, you know, basically people came and, you know, still did wild and crazy things in their freshman year because they were kind of woo free at last kind of thing. But, but they basically were, you know, young adults when they arrived. And there's been this a pretty um, strong observation. You know, a, a lot of people are observing now that in university environments, they are basically getting sort of large children. They are getting people who have not really been given a lot of responsibility and independence and sort of self-regulation, you know, opportunities until they get to college. And this is causing a big shift in the in the way colleges have to function because they essentially have to help raise these, you know, big kids and help them become adults. Well, this is kind of a bizarre, you know, societal problem that obviously, you know, none of us can solve on our own. But it occurred to me as I went around to farms and ranches everywhere in the United States and in other countries, I saw again and again, young kids and, you know, teenagers and stuff that were 
functioning in a very different way than what I was normally seeing in urban and suburban environments. And these were people who had young people who had a lot more sense of purpose, a lot more sort of competence with daily tasks and a sense of responsibility and a capacity to, you know, be self-disciplined and get things done because they were given chores for the most part. They were included in the farming and ranching operation from a young age. They were given responsibility. And it's not even so much that the farm people are focused on rearing good kids, although they are, but it's more just that that's what you do on a farm and ranch. You, you know, you teach your kids and they become part of the family that's raising you know, doing whatever the farm is doing or farmer ranch is doing. So it really is a unique environment. And, and then of course there's, you know, as you mentioned, there's the whole questions of the exposure to all of the different kinds of microorganisms that you have on a farm. And interestingly, it's been shown that in particular being on a farm with livestock is really beneficial because Basically, you're getting in contact, you're coming in contact throughout your life if you're growing up on a farm with a a whole variety of different microorganisms, a much greater diversity of microorganisms. And it's believed that that creates a more robust immune system. And so there's quite a bit of good data showing that farm kids are basically much less likely to have food allergies, much less likely to have asthma. And also to just be, you know, healthier in a number of other measures. And so, you know, and of course they have more physical activity. They tend to be outside more. They tend to be moving their bodies around more, getting more vitamin D from the sunshine. I mean, there are just lots of different ways, which it's a really beneficial environment for kids. And so, you know, obviously not everybody can live on a farm. And, you know, I know that that's never going to be the case, but I just wanted to make the argument that there's a real reason for society to care about whether farms and ranches disappear. And we need to think about it from the perspective of, you know, the health of our population and the robustness of our democracy, because this is a place where you create independent people, resilient people, you know, people that are very responsible. And, you know, I've, I've, I've seen it with my own eyes and I'm, you know, very, very, I feel very fortunate to have this environment to raise my two boys on. Absolutely. I, I think th- I just loved this part of the book. And I, and I think this is a new addition. And I think that as we look at the people that are matriculating into society, as it were, for, you know, and what these colleges and universities are experiencing, we have to think about how we how we imbue our children with a sense of independence in a new world. You know, I think I was kind of one of the last, I was born in 1988, one of the last generation of sort of feral children where I was running around (laughs) on my bike for miles and miles and gone all day. And I think that and I know there's some more can all included in the show notes of of some people that are really trying to create that also in suburban and more urban areas, how we foster a sense of independence in children and create spaces where that can unfold in what is a very different time and place than the 80s or the 70s were. And I'm just really appreciative for you, including this. And as we talk about these these intangible benefits. There was one other that you mentioned that I did want to bring up, which was 
having agricultural lands changes the way that the world develops. And, and you say it might even be argued that the most important role that primary consumers play in 21st century California is not providing the traditional livestock products of meat, milk and fiber, but rather acting as a bulwark against the conversion of range into housing developments, vineyards and other more intensive land uses that do not provide the multiple ecosystem services bestowed by range ecosystems. Yes. So there's, um, and I'm, I'm glad that some of the major environmental organizations are beginning to recognize this. So the Nature Conservancy, TNC, is one that has begun for, you know, at least probably a decade, working with a lot of ranches and farms to try to help them you know, be able to stay there and continue doing what they're doing. And the Audubon Society has begun working with, it works with hundreds of ranches around and farms around the United States, maybe thousands even. I know Point Blue, another environmental organization that's based not too far from here, does that as well. And the reason they're kind of focusing on let's help these people continue to be able to operate is because of the recognition that they're actually keeping land open and keeping it, you know, sort of semi-wild. It's obviously a place where there is human activity. There's agricultural activity. But what's been shown is, especially in places like California, where there's a huge amount of development pressure, those agricultural uses are really protecting places for wildlife, you know. And I just have to step outside or even just look outside my window here. And the amount of wildlife is sort of stunning. I mean, every, you know, every kind of you know, raptor, every kind of, you know, songbird, you know, we have tons of everything, you know, snakes and badgers and coyotes, bobcats. I mean, you see it, you don't just see it every once in a while. You see it all day, every day when you're out on the ranch, because our ranch is a home for, you know, countless animals and plants, wild plants as well. And in fact, um, I believe I talk about it in the book. I wrote an article for The Atlantic a number of years ago about wild pollinators as well. I mean, wild pollinators, research from UC Berkeley shows that they actually carry out about 40% of the pollination of the crops that are raised in California and that their main place where they reside is actually ranches. So um, it's a sort of, again, sort of not, people aren't necessarily connecting these dots a lot of times, but plant agriculture actually benefits dramatically from the existence of ranches because the wild pollinators play a, an incredibly important role. It's, it's actually thought they might play an even more important role, you know, going forward because no one really knows when the, the colony collapse disorder of the domesticated bees is going to stop. And so that wild pollinator piece is sort of more and more valued as essential in plant food production. And so, you know, everything is connected and um, just having, you know, open places that protect wildlife, protect wild animals or plants and animals. And then also I talk about in the book, I don't know if you're going to ask about this, Kate, but water, you know, there's a, um, <laughs> obviously California has a particular focus on water because there's so much wild fire risk here and there's, you know, historic drought happening, but ranches, well-managed ranches in particular, um, hold a lot of water in the soil. And just by keeping a vegetative cover on the land, you know, especially as opposed to something like, you know, urban uses of the land, but really compared to crop production as well, they, that dense vegetative cover actually helps 
filter the water that goes into the ground, the groundwater and the surface water that goes through the soil into the groundwater and into the surface or just runs off directly from the land. It's been, there's quite a bit of research showing that where you have pasture or rangeland, you actually have cleaner water and more abundant water. So um, when we think about water as an important resource, it's another reason that ranches are so important, especially well-managed ranches. So again, you know, we need to be having that conversation about how we're managing these lands and um, making it possible for people to improve what they're doing. But it's a really invaluable piece of, you know, sort of managing our ecosystems. I love this. And I have a little piece. I want to dive into water because I I think that's that's a an important piece to me and an important piece in all of this. But before we get there, I'd love to pause and get into this piece around relationships. And so much of what you've described thus far is that there are relationships within these ecosystems and ultimately between people and their animals. And a theme I picked up on in the book was this idea of husbandry. And I I really loved the idea of building and looking at the reciprocal relationship that can happen between rancher, farmer, and their stock. And I went back, I people who listen to the podcast know that I love to look up dictionary definitions of things. And I think that so often husbandry is used in this term of the actor practice of cultivating crops and breeding and raising livestock, agriculture. But there's another definition that is the careful management or conservation of resources. And I think to me, this actually speaks in some ways to the deeper relationship that happens between farmers and their stock, that it is it is about this this gentle management of resources. And you said in the book that stated simply, factory farms are violating humans' age-old contract with domesticated animals. For American farm animals, consideration of the individual animal's dignity was forsaken mid-20th century. Husbandry implies skill, care, and consideration. You go on, and I have the whole quote of talking about this this contract that has happened as we have co-evolved in many ways with domesticated livestock over the past 10, 12,000 years of agriculture and, and that there is, there is a, a contract there and a sort of sacred relationship within that space. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really unfortunate. I think a lot of the anti-meat Sort of input, you know, the the energy behind anti meatism, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, whether it's veganism, <laughs> vegetarianism, animal rights, whatever the you know whatever the thing is. But I think it was really um, catalyzed. It was certainly you know dramatically expanded by the the growth of factory farms because what what that really did was it suggested that in order to have meat in our diets we had to use these systems and and, and that was stated in fact explicitly again and again by mainstream agriculture that this was necessary now we needed to do this to create enough food to feed the world and this get you know, bigger, that get out. Is, Earl Butts. yeah and it's just it's the kind of 
underlying rationale for the whole direction that the food system has gone in terms of industrialization. So I, you know, I sort of squarely reject that. What I do is I argue that I think it's entirely ethical for humans. I mean, of course, every individual is free to make up their own decisions of what they eat. But as far as sort of collectively for humanity, I think raising animals for food having them as part of our food system, having them on our farms and ranches is absolutely appropriate and ethically acceptable and moral as long as we provide, you know, we hold up that contract you were talking about. We we take care of our animals. We provide them what is necessary for them to have dignity in their lives. And I even argue joy. And I know there are people who will say, oh, that's anthropomorphism of animals, you know, whatever. But just as we see, in fact, I had an interesting conversation a few years ago with a hunter, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who I really like, a person I like and respect a lot. But he was saying, well, I think joy is not really a word you could use for, you know, farm animals. And I said, well, do you think your dog has joy, you know, when he comes home at the end of the day? And, you know, will you come home at the end of the day? And he's, oh, for sure. You know, and I said, well, but you know that pigs and dogs have comparable intelligence." And so would you say a pig couldn't have that same, you know, joy? And he kind of had to pause and say, well, I'm not so sure. (laughs) It's kind of tough questions. We kind of don't want to think about the emotions and the inner lives of farm animals because it, to some degree, makes it harder to kill them and eat them. But I actually think, you know, traditional cultures, which lived alongside wild animals and domesticated animals all over the world and herding cultures, they recognized these inner lives of the animals. It was undeniable. You were you were living alongside your animals. And in fact, you know, I, I've always thought those really early cave paintings that are, you know, preserved in France and other parts of the world are super interesting because you see the tremendous admiration that these the people living in those times and in those places had for these animals. It was, you know, almost kind of I don't think a worship would be quite the right word, but it was a reverence um, that was clearly exhibited. And in fact, I was just in in Europe for a couple of weeks and I was at the British Museum as well as other a few other museums. And I always take a lot of photographs of the artwork that's done of the livestock, of the animals that are the domesticated animals around the world. And it's really striking to me. There are just beautiful representations of you know, sheep, goats, cattle, um, pigs, you know, from all around the world going way back to very, very early times. And in fact, some of the earliest artwork that's been recovered everywhere in the world is often of animals. So, you know, we have this, humans have this ancient relationship with animals, this deep connection, this interest in them, and I would even say compassion for them, and a recognition that they are like us in many ways. But that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with eating those animals. And I think people felt that way for forever. And then we very recently, on the one hand, we urbanized, as we've been talking about, more and more. So you have a greater and greater percentage of the population living in complete physical separation from farm animals. 
And we also, at the same time, created these industrial ways of raising animals. So even the people who were doing it themselves, in many cases, are living in a kind of a distant way from those animals. Yes, they may walk through those buildings regularly. I've actually been on quite a few of these concentrated pig operations, and in some cases, they're almost unmanned. They're basically automated. And so some of them, one of them that I was on in uh, North Carolina was quite remote from where the person was living. And they literally just went there once a day and walked up and down the, you know, and there were thousands of animals there in these confinement operations. So the idea, you know, that we become more and more separated from the inner lives of animals and the behaviors and the needs and their talents and their interests and their ability to feel joy, which I really do believe is there. Um, I believe that too. I think that's, you know, that's happened. Okay. So even both within the urban community, I mean, on the urban side, it's more of a separation. And in some cases, I would say even a kind of a romanticization, if that's a word, (laughs) romanticizing, (laughs) uh, you know, of animals to the point where we don't want to you know, we don't want to eat them. Okay. Again, I think that's fine if an individual makes that choice. But what I don't like is when people who are living in a completely urban and separated environment, you know, when they tell all of us what our relationship with animals should be. Because I have been really struck. I have a huge, you know, I've mentioned I've been on a lot of other farms and ranches in the last 20 years, and I live on our own ranch every day. But I've also got a large network of farms and ranches from around the world on my social media pages. And as much as social media can be a force for bad, it can also be a force for good. And I see tremendous connections happening between farmers and ranchers all around the world and sharing of knowledge happening on social media. And one thing I'm really struck by literally daily is the care that these farmers and ranchers are giving their animals and how much interest they have in them. And, you know, they, they love sharing photographs of the new calf or of the, you know, the lamb that had to be brought inside and is sitting by the fireplace in their living room, you know, because, because it had gotten (laughs) a chill or because its mother had abandoned it or whatever. And they tell the stories. And this is like daily. I see many of these kind of posts on um, Facebook. So I know it isn't just me. You know, it's it's a quite a widespread phenomenon. And when I encounter younger people, and this is another part of the reason I'm very optimistic about the food system, everywhere I go, I meet younger people that are entering into agriculture, that are entering into restaurants, that are entering into, you know, school spaces. And they're, they, they're the people that are bringing the gardens into the schools and connecting this the lunch with the garden. They're the people that are really kind of pushing the regenerative agricultural movement. And they're doing a lot of apprenticeships on farms everywhere I go. And this is a very different ethos among these younger people in their 20s and 30s that I keep meeting. And they're interested in this idea of truly regenerative agriculture, where life is respected, the life of the animal, the life of the plant, the fungi, everything that's there, and its interconnectedness. And as you were saying, Kate, the relationships between everything and and the relationships between the people, the people on the farm and in the community and, and building those relationships and feeding people directly in their community and their own family members. It's a totally different ethos from kind of the 
you know, late 20th century, early 21st century, just kind of you have one or two things that you produce on your farm and it gets shipped off, you know, it's corn or it's soy or, you know, something like that wheat maybe, and it's just gone and you have no idea where it even goes. I mean, that was the extractive industrial model of the late 20th century, early 21st century. And I think there's a very different model that's beginning to really overtake the mainstream as far as the way farming and agriculture and food and health and everything is all viewed. Thank God. (laughs) I agree completely. Yes. And thank God. I think that there is too an evolutionary basis for our relationship and reverence with animals as much as there is for a diet that we might be eating or the way that an ecosystem and ruminants and grasslands co-evolved together, that there is that historical perspective of seeing that art, whether it's at Lascaux and you're looking at the aurochs on the, on the cave wall, there is that reverence because this is what's feeding and nourishing us. And, and no relationship, I think, in many ways could be more central to human evolution than the relationship between us and our food, which ultimately, as animals, we want... I think in our heart of hearts for that to be a, a good relationship. And I pulled when I was talking about intangible benefits, we benefit the most. Like we are, you say we are taught nature's lessons in stark relief. We witness the inevitability of illness, injury, and death, the cycles of birth, growth, aging, and decline. We are constantly reminded of the fragility of life, of what it takes to be a good parent, of bravery, patience, loyalty. If we are paying attention, we are learning from our animals constantly. And I loved this because this is, I think, within the community of farming and ranching, we see ourselves reflected in them. We see our own joy reflected back to us in just the most magnificent way. Yeah. And I always say I was very fortunate to have a wonderful mother and she was by far my most important mentor in parenting and my father as well. But and this is not a joke. This is, some people are going to think this is ridiculous, but I'm going to say it anyways. Another one of my mentors is a cow. <laughs> She's, she was a terrific yes. cow. And I've had lots of cow mentors, but one in particular that we jokingly called girlfriend because she was my first and best friend here when I moved here and married my husband. But to see, you know, to just watch the beauty of the the care and the, you know, the relationship that, that I saw. I mean, cattle, it's really fun raising cattle because you get to see these animals over years and you get to see, you know, you, you know them very individually, which I, you know, we've raised poultry, turkeys and chickens, and mm-hmm. um, we have chickens right now. We had a heritage turkey flock here for about nine years. We we used to buy turkeys from you uh, oh, for Thanksgiving oh, okay, at the butcher oh, right. shop. Of course. Okay. Excellent. So, you know, and you know, I really enjoy being around them, but I did not have individual relationships with them the way that I do you know, have with the cattle. They're easier to bond with and to know individually. And to me, to watch the mothering and just the fierce loyalty and protectiveness and just deep care that you see from the mother cow to her calf is is really inspiring. And, you know, we're all kind of, you know, parents these days, you know, again, I think this has to do with the way we're living nowadays. And I think there's so much not healthy about modern lifestyles. And we're always rushing around and doing too much. And we're always looking at our phones, looking at our screens, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I am a victim of that as well. <laughs> you know, a victim. I'm, I'm a participant, you know, and I try to fight a lot of this 
this stuff and try to not get too caught up in it. But I think we tend to be, you know, kind of racing around and overcommitted and doing too much these days. And I, and when you stand there in a pasture and you watch a mother cow licking her calf or, you know, nursing her calf, it just reminds you what's important. <laughs> it really literally grounding. And so I, um, you know, I'm really grateful that I've, again, you know, being on this beautiful place and giving my children the opportunity to be here, but also reminding me every day about what's really important. I feel the same way. I'm not a parent yet, but I, when I look out and I watch the cows chewing their cud and just that sense of peace and, and sort of oneness with their environment that they sort of melt into this meditative state of just being that it reminds me what it is to slow down and just to just be, to just chew my cud out in a field in the sunshine on a, on a cold day. It's chilly here today. (laughs) And I've had people in my community quite a few times tell me how much they enjoy just being amongst our cattle because they can walk through the cattle here. And for that exact reason, they'll talk about how it just makes them, reminds them just to be present and to slow down and just to connect with the earth. And, um, and I feel, you know, as someone who's directly involved in caring for these animals, I get that feeling every day out on the ranch. So I, I think it's a real privilege to be involved in farming and ranching. And, um, and I think it's something that we should, as a society, you know, we should value that. I agree. And I want to ask you about this sort of return to regenerative ag as you've seen it, as you've traveled the world. You know, one of the the things that I have here is that in this relationship with animals and, and you talk about this increasing yields and whether, you know, we're using growth hormones or antibiotics or whatever it is, but you talk about the, the difference between the annual per cow milk output from the beginning of the 20th century to now. And it's almost sevenfold from 348 gallons at the turn of the century to over 2,700 gallons today. And this mechanization and the way that we have taken human hands out of the industry has really changed it. Whether it's the hog farm you just talked about, or I think there are many different aspects of this. But now that you see more, I mean, I'm a first generation farmer and more return to spaces within agriculture, whether they are in kitchens or they are actually on farms growing vegetables, or even if it's just consumer interest in supporting their local farms or ranches how this really does begin to change the tide. Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, I always think our role as individual consumers is really important. And it's the thing that we most connect with, you know, because we're we're feeding ourselves, we're feeding our children, we're feeding our families, whatever. So we have a, you know, each of us can think about it in a really tangible way. And I think that role as consumers is incredibly important because it creates you know, basically the demand for doing things a different way and the actual, actual financing of, you know, what what I would call the revolution, the revolution that needs to happen in food production and agriculture. It needs to be financed largely from consumers. So I think that's important. Each of us thinking about not shopping in the supermarket 
exclusively, trying to get out, get out of the supermarket, get as much as we can. You know, we're probably all going to go to the supermarket to get some pasta and some, you know, maybe some rice, some coffee, some salt, you know, but to get as much as you can from, you know, first of all, grow your own if you can, support your neighbors if you can. I mean, I have, I have a, I happen to live in a kind of unusual community, but there are many people with backyard chicken flocks here. So I started looking as soon as I got here about where to get eggs from and developed a relationship with several people. And so that I could always get eggs from one of my neighbors. And there are several farm stands in our community that we go to every week to get a lot of our vegetables and our greens and our herbs. And then I have a garden and we have a small orchard because, you know, we're obviously fortunate to have some land here. But we, you know, we try to just raise food, gather food from our community. We even have local fisher persons that we do bartering with. Um, So we get kind of a lot of our food from different people around us. And I think each of us can do that and find the joy in those relationships that we've been talking about, Kate, not just, not just, um, you know, like, oh, this is, you know, going to make me feel better. Like I'm, I'm doing the right thing, but it's like, you're actually having a more rewarding experience and getting food that's more nourishing and supporting the local economy. So there are so many reasons to do that. But I also want to stress that I think the role of the consumer is just one piece of it. I think each of us are citizens as well. We have a voice. We have a vote. We can use not just voting with our fork, which we've been talking about, but actually talking with people that we elect about, you know, food system issues. Um, you know, what's being served at our school lunches. We can talk with our school board members about that. We can talk to our Congress people about, you know, um, the fact that this is important to us and that we don't want antibiotics in our food system, that we want, um, you know, the, the verification systems in place, things like that, all the kinds of things that policymakers are responsible for. We can express the fact that we think having a healthy, locally or regionally based food system is really important to us. So we can do that as well. And I think we really need to demand better policy from our government at all levels in terms of, for example, incentivizing better soil health. I think this is something that, you know, California has been doing this and the Biden administration actually has been doing quite a bit of this. And I think this is really smart to be sort of creating resources for farmers and ranchers and also, um, you know, um, training and education and just ways to make this more possible and to help farmers to be more financially successful, but to do it in a way that we're incentivizing movement towards a more ecologically vibrant and more nourishing food system, rather than just subsidizing agriculture for production's sake. I'm very strongly opposed to doing that. And that's actually what um, the government's been doing for the last, you know, half century or more. And that's gotten us into the mess that we're in today. So I don't, you know, I'm not just like in favor of blindly subsidizing agriculture, but I do think agriculture and food systems are worthy of, you know, subsidizing. We just need to do it in the right way so that we're producing healthy food and that we're stewarding the land properly. And we're incentivizing that through subsidies. Can I ask you, I, I'm curious from your perspective, and I think that this financial health of farmers conversation is incredibly important and our voice as citizens to shift policy. When I think about 
subsidies, I think that they have both driven the consumer towards foods like vegetable oils or more grain-based and processed foods that might not be beneficial for their or their health or soil health. But there is also a component of hasn't really favored meat does in some ways, uh, because I think 80% of the grain grown in the United States goes into ultimately animal feed. But I think it's also created, it's just created a space where we're we've artificially suppressed the real cost of food. And so I think there are all these different pieces. There's a health piece and there's a food piece and there's a centralization of farms piece. And I, I'm just curious how you think that could change if we can get our voices heard. Yeah. Well, I think the role of the consumer, like we've just been talking about, but I think as far as, so that's important. That's part of it. I think, you know, sort of driving, you know, more demand and asking at our retailers and our restaurants for our, you know, supporting, is this coming from local farms? You know, and how was this raised? Where is this from? Et cetera. I think those questions are important, but I also think, you know, sort of federal policy can incentivize better practices. And, and I actually do not think we should be subsidizing large scale grain production in the way that we're doing now. That that's really, um, that's, that's how the concentration and the industrialization of the animal sector started. And it's really what's propping it up. So, you know, I don't think from one day to the next, we should just, you know, completely strip everything away because we don't want collapse of the food system, obviously. But I think, what we should be trying to build, the food system we should be trying to build should be based on grass. It should be based on soil health. It should be based on diversity. So we should be encouraging in public policy, in agricultural policy, and we should be teaching at agricultural colleges this truly regenerative model, which is about thinking in terms of the true landscape function, as Charles Massey says, that what what was this place meant to be in terms of its actual, the climate, the topography, the, you know, the geography of this place, wherever you are, and then how do you raise food wherever you are that works with that system? And in coming up with, you know, a policy that actually incentivizes food systems that look like ecosystems and that function like ecosystems. And there's a complexity and a diversity to it. So it's taking the focus away from production in terms of quantity. And it's putting the focus on making our systems look like more like nature and producing soil health and regenerating continuously that soil health and improving it and also creating truly nourishing food so I, you know, I was talking to a farmer once a few years ago and he said, I just realized I was driving through this huge agricultural area and there was no food at all. It was all feed. <laughs> and I thought that was an interesting distinction I hadn't thought about before, but that there were just vast tracts of the best agricultural land in this country that is just being used to produce feeds. And also actually a large portion of that, something around 30%, is actually going into biofuels, which everybody recognizes now is so wasteful and ridiculous. So that's that's the thing is there's a lot of absurdity in agricultural policy. And I think we just really need to rethink it. And we need to make sure that our values, our human values, 
are reflected in our agricultural policy and in our subsidies, because right now it's not. And, and, and we'll be told, we've been told for a long time that we have to do what we're doing because this is necessary to feed the world, but there's more and more evidence that that that's a failed policy. We have, you know, denuded our landscapes. We have polluted our waters and we have created a vast negative perception of agriculture in general, but especially of animal agriculture by going down that path. And we need to sort of radically rethink what we're doing. Thank you. That was beautiful. And I, I think too that feeding the world, animal agriculture is what is most accessible to many, many parts of the world is this relationship with animals. And it is what is supported by the environment that most of the world is a part of that cannot be a space where crops are grown and can be a positive force. So I think that's fantastic. I I have to, I would be remiss. We've talked about water so much on the podcast. And so I just want to kind of gently close with exploring water a little bit. I know that you cut your teeth working for Bobby Kennedy Jr. at Waterkeepers Alliance and looking more at water pollution uh, from manure lagoons and and predominantly animal agriculture and some of the runoff that, that can happen in that space. And you, you mentioned in the interview that regenerative agriculture provides such an opportunity for us to capture water in soils and to really create water cycling that is important and a great mitigation of fires in the West, uh, as well as cleaning groundwater. And I wonder, as somebody who's ranching in California at this time, when the West has seen so many fires and as the conversation around water becomes, I think, of critical importance and having this background, just if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, well, it's funny because um, a few things. First of all, we're sort of fortunate. We're right on the coast in our ranch. And so even though it's a very dry year, and it has been, you know, during this drought period, we're actually not technically in a drought (laughs) because we get so much moisture from the coast, uh, from the coastal fog. But that being said, everyone in California, including us and, you know, everyone along the coast as well, is very focused on this question of using water wisely and taking care of water resources. And I, you know, what I'm always trying to add to the conversation, what I think sort of the part I want to add to it is people have this idea that, you know, animals and especially cattle are super water intensive in terms of their production. And so I quite often get the, you know, the question like, well, don't you think in times of drought now we need to reduce cattle numbers because cattle are so water intensive? Well, again, that's not, that's looking at it through an incredibly oversimplified lens and not really thinking about the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that where you have cattle, well, first of all, I think it's important to just look at the statistics on water and cattle um, and and how much they use. And, you know, over 90% of the water that is used in cattle production is actually in grass. So it's not, you know, people 
people have this perception when they hear those figures, they think this is the cattle standing at the water trough and drinking, <laughs> you know, drinking it all. And this is this huge amount of water going into producing a pound of beef or whatever. It's actually the vast majority of the water that's in any beef production system. This is even true for cattle that go through a feedlot, but it's particularly true if it's totally grass-fed beef. But the vast, vast, vast majority of the water in that system is actually contained in the grass. So again, the cattle are part of a sort of a natural cycling and they're actually consuming the grass. And by doing that, and they're consuming the water in the grass, by doing that, they're sort of catalyzing the whole ecosystem health because they're actually converting grass. They're sort of mowing that grass with their grazing, which helps the diversity of the flora that you, you have more diverse plants where you have grazing because later sprouting species are able to get, you know, the penetration of the sunlight. So you're, you know, so, sort of in the same way that you mow your lawn in part to keep it healthy and to keep it dense, grazing has that impact. But there's also this even probably more important effect of the cattle converting the grass into the manure and the urine, which is so water going back into the system, system, but also with all the beneficial aspects that are in, in manure, which is not just the nitrogen and the phosphorus, the potassium, everything that's contained in manure, but especially that microbiology that's contained in manure, which is which really catalyzes the health of the soil and, and the whole system and the diversity of the living organisms that are in the soil. So when we think about water and we think about the grazing animals, it's really important to, first of all, understand that the vast majority of the water that they're consuming is contained in the vegetation that they're consuming and that that has a lot of beneficial effects. The fact that they're consuming it helps the whole health of that whole ecosystem. And then as we talked about earlier, there, there, you're actually where you have that vegetative cover, which is fostered by grazing, you will actually contain more water in the soil. So there's more water in that whole ecosystem. So I think when we talk about water, we have to think about this more complex, bigger picture. And there's actually an Australian scientist, Dr. Walter Yene, who writes about hydrological cycles. And he believes in the importance of the grazing animals and having them on the land because of these effects that I've just been describing. And he thinks this is actually incredibly important in climate change because he thinks that the role of water and the way it cycles through 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 our planetary system it has not been fully understood and appreciated in climate change. But he believes that having these grazing animals helps have healthy water cycles and therefore even in that way helps to sort of counter the effects of climate change that we're getting from, you know, human development and from industry. So the answers are never easy. <laughs> the questions are complex, but I think the bottom line is having animals and having particularly the grazing animals in our food system is very important, not just for human health in terms of nourishment, but in terms of planetary health, because we need these animals having the animal impact that they would have had for, for, for millions of years. And the wild animals would have been there, and now we have the domestic animals sort of replacing them. We need them on the land, but we need to focus on taking good care of them and managing them well. 
it's not the cow, it's the how, <laughs> as I always say. I think that that's a perfect place to to close this. I think that that's, and I love, um, I'll send a link. There's a video that Walter Yanay did on YouTube that I think really helps elucidate this idea of water cycling. And I think it also tells us that, and I think throughout this conversation, there are all of these relationships and we're a part of a system. And there are all of these systems that are both tangible and intangible, both seen and unseen, that are unfolding, whether or not we fully understand them. And it's impossible to pluck one element out of it and fully understand what its place was or what its effect is or is not. It's all connected. Yeah, it really is all connected. I ask everybody this on the podcast and for everyone, it's a little bit different. Sometimes it's in the grander sense of what it means throughout generations. Sometimes it's just what it means for you at home. But what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And I I mean, this is obviously something that you're doing in your work. I think you're laying the groundwork for farmers and for environmental policy and for many things, but like to ask. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I, I think we need to, and those of us that are in agriculture and, you know, that are actually doing the work every day, sometimes we don't feel appreciated. We don't feel heard. We don't feel understood. So what I'm trying to do is make sure everyone in agriculture um, feels honored, understands that they're the, the value of what they're doing is recognized, but that doesn't mean that we can't do better. And I always include our own ranch in this. I feel like every day we try to improve what we're doing and we constantly discuss and debate how to do that. But it's a journey for all of us to try to take better care of the land, take better care of the animals, produce more and healthier food. And, you know, how do we do that? And that's the challenge. But to just know that this is really important work and that you are valued and respected and you deserve, you're worthy of that respect. Perfect. Thank you. And we'll have links to all of this, but where can people find you? I'll have a link to Defending Beef and... I am quite active on some social media. I don't do all of it, <laughs> but I have um, a Defending Beef Twitter and Facebook account, and those are great places to follow. I put a lot of articles and information and links to where I'm speaking, et cetera, and people, and there are a lot of good discussions in those places as well. So that's a good way to check out what I'm doing. Incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you for having a, a sort of different flavor interview with me. And also just thank you for your work. I mean, from the turkeys we used to buy in bulk for Thanksgiving, turkeys from the ranch, and you've just touched my life in a lot of different places throughout time. And I'm really appreciative of that. And I'm deeply appreciative of this new edition, which I think you should just be so proud of. I think that what you've included and what you've built in it is incredible. So thank, thank you. Kate. I really appreciate being your guest today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. 
You can find them at Alright Alright on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>